Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? We are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. Tonight's episode features former high school debater Dr. Brad Berzer. Dr. Berzer is the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies and Professor of History at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan. He is also the co-founder of the Imaginative Conservative, an online journal of conservative thought. He's the author of several biographies, including uh, The Lives of Andrew Jackson, J.R.R. Tolkien, Christopher Dawson, and Russell Kirk. I am proud to say that I took Dr. Berzer's Jacksonian America History class about a decade ago. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't believe it's been a decade, but but it's been that long. Uh, tonight, we'll be discussing Dr. Berger's most recent book entitled Beyond Tenebrae, Christian Humanism in the Twilight of the West. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh. I'm proud to have had you as a student. So this is great. I'm glad we're able to do this. Oh, and I always enjoy, enjoy getting in contact with each other whenever we can. Uh, it's true. It's it's too rare. The uh, the paper I wrote for, for that class was the one I submitted for uh, proof that I, I could write a paper for uh, my doctoral program at Faulkner. Nice. Uh, that was, nice. I don't know if you, you probably don't remember that. I know you see thousands of papers. You've seen thousands of papers. That was one on John Humphrey Noyes and the Oneida community. Oh, yeah, sure. Once upon a time. Absolutely. That was, yeah, you're right. I have seen a lot of papers. But yes, <laughs> I remember your paper very well. That's great, Josh. Well, I, I remember we crossed paths a couple summers ago, and you mentioned that you actually did debate back in high school. Tell us a little bit about that. That was actually my life. Uh, I mean, really, that was everything. I'm not sure I would have made it through high school without debate and forensics. So, yeah, I, I started in the fall of 1982, and then I graduated high school in the spring of 1986. So we had a, a lot of great debate programs. I did Lincoln, De Lincoln Douglas. I did Two Man. I did Student Congress. I did Extemporaneous Speaking. I did one man drama. Yeah, it was uh, probably they, probably those are not politically correct anymore. <laughs> right, two person, right? Not two man. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I did all that. That was my life for four years, oh, and I, I loved it. I was a member of the National Forensic League, and yeah, it was great. Uh, we we actually just uh, my my school just joined. They they've rebranded now. I don't know if you're familiar with the current ling lingo, but they're. The National Forensics League doing business as the National Speech and Debate Association. No, I did not know that. The uh, I, I I heard from another coach. I remember the, the NDSA. Oh, uh, yeah. Apparently, um, a, a lot of people got confused when students would say, "Oh, yeah, I'm in the NFL." And right. <laughs> everyone, yeah. of course, assumes yeah. football. And, you know, so. Uh, but we actually just we we've now got uh, students. So, did you have the 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 uh, certificates and the seals and and all that? Was that a oh, thing? Oh yeah, then? yeah. And we used to get rostrum and oh yeah, definitely. Oh yeah. Well, we're 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 oh, wow. That's amazing. We're that's fantastic. Yeah. Dude. yeah. Even back in the eighties, we still had we were that advanced, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it just kind of, I didn't really realize how much of a tradition we were getting into when we when yeah. we officially joined up. And and we actually had three leagues in or we had three districts in Kansas. That's how huge debate was in Kansas. It was huge. Uh, it was a, a major. I'm, I'm sure it still is, but it was definitely a major event back what, then. You said you're not sure you would have made it through high school without debate. What what was it particularly about debate that kind of got you through high school? Was it I mean, was it the travel, debate. the research? Something yeah, else? you know, I never, I mean, the travel was fine. That was something you had to kind of put up with. Uh, I always loved the debating and I loved being at different high schools. Uh, so that was great. But I just, I was kind of, I went to a good, but it was still a public high school. I went to a good public high school in Kansas, some great friends, and I had some good teachers. But I think I would have been born without having debate. And it really kept me not just the topics we had for, for policy debate or for LD just kept me really interested all the time. And, and you know, I used to, I can't even believe I could do this now. I, I don't think I could do it at this point, but you know, this was back before the internet. So you know, every week we got the wall street journal and the, and the Christian science monitor and the New York times. And of course then all the big magazines, time and newsweek and us news and my friends and I, I, I just, I could name every person in the Reagan administration, you know, it was, you know, back in those days, I knew people in the Senate and then in the House. And, and I, I mean, I could tell you now some of the people, but nothing like I could then. You know, I knew I knew everything about arms sales going on in Libya and Israel. And, you know, that's so funny. 
policy Great debate stuff. this year is back around to an arms sales topic. So oh, I, is it really? Yeah, it's yeah, uh, that's great. It's, I, I, I assume it's kind of a time honored formula, but it's something like um, uh, arms sales to Saudi Arabia should be discontinued, or some, something like that. We don't yeah. really do policy. We we do public forum and Lincoln Douglas and, uh, yeah. and then, uh, debate with the Coolidge League. Well, now I am great. I I am curious also about. Yeah, I know your your career has been really fantastic, and I, I've loved watching over the last few years as uh, you picked up some some pretty big notoriety as far as professors from small liberal arts colleges go. Man, you you have you you keep publishing books, you keep getting these uh, chances to go speak at big name conferences, and uh, am I you were you were out at UC Boulder for a year as the uh, yeah that's right that was a really nice honor wasn't that the yeah. the I remember seeing your title there, Visiting Professor of Conservative Thought. Is that right? Yeah, they've, they've changed it now. Yeah, Visiting Schol- our scholar, of conserv- uh, scholar of Conservative Thought and Policy. Okay. That was it. Well, yeah. Now I think it's it's Western Civ and okay. Policy. But yeah, they took the conservative out. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. well, we'll come back to conservative <laughs> here in a few minutes. I want, I want, to, I want to get your thoughts on defining that, that wonderful word. Oh, but sure. Did, Absolutely. Your career has gone in so many different directions between teaching in the classroom, writing, uh, public speaking, and your, of course, your formal training as a historian. Does do, do you see any connection between all that and debate, or are those completely unrelated areas of your life? Oh no, I in in almost every way, Josh, and I'm sure you feel this too as a coach. Right? Debate just shaped it shaped the way it shaped the way I think. It shaped the way I research. It shaped the way I think about writing papers. It gave me confidence in the classroom to be able to speak my mind. Mm. Uh, you know, and I, I know that was a huge advantage when I went to college, just having that confidence to be able to state my opinions when you know other students may have been even smarter, uh, maybe a lot smarter, but they just didn't have that same confidence. And I think that gave me a, a real it, it gave me a lot of my own personal self-confidence and it helped a lot. But I, I'm sure you see that all the time. Josh. Oh, I, I, I do. I mean, and, and I see it even in. Uh, there, there's some students who I'm, I'm, I'm sure your team had these folks too. Who uh, we've got kids who go to a tournament and they always have a positive win loss record. But we've also got kids who, man, if they win a single round, I am just floored because that's really <laughs> unusual for those students. But when I then when we're not at a tournament day and they're just in the normal life of the school, all of those students stand out. Even the ones who yeah, at a tournament, right. they're the bottom of the heap as far as comp- competitiveness goes. Yeah. But compared to their students who never do public speaking or debate, like, oh, my goodness, they can articulate yeah. their views and they're so quick to respond. And they're they're yeah. almost just more alert in a certain way. No, that's right. I mean, you're, it teaches you how to focus on certain ideas and, and then, then just kind of narrow down on that. So yeah, I mean that it, it was indispensable for me in every way. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Cause one of the things that I love doing on this podcast is getting the stories of folks who were in debates. Uh, we, we had uh, a professor at Harvard, a guy named uh, Joe Aldi was on the show a couple months yeah. ago and he did LD and policy in Kentucky in the uh, late eighties, very early nineties. Uh, but and he's he's he said similar things. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for asking. It's fun to think about too. It's been so long. Well, I do want to get to I do want to get to your book because I really enjoyed reading this. Uh, I, I it arrived. Uh, I think I saw it was published. I think about two weeks ago is when it was. Yeah, and that last Monday I think. Okay, yeah, so almost a week and a half ago. Perfect. So we're still pretty soon, pretty early on. Uh, in, oh, in definitely. The, so uh, the book is titled Beyond Tenebrae, Christian Humanism in the Twilight of the West. Listeners, if you haven't ordered your copy, the link will be in our show description, and you should definitely order a copy. But, um, I, Brad, as I read this, it felt like you. Uh, it, it felt like I was back in your class, and there was a mix of stories and analysis and just a quintessential Berzer take on this. So could you tell us just a little bit about this book and tell us the story of the book? Where did this book come from? So I, I'd had a, a chance to meet the – I've never actually personally met, but to get to know the editor through correspondence, a guy named John Reese. And he had put together Angelico as a press a few years ago and I think has really done some very interesting philosophical and theological work. And I, I was getting to the point where I've been writing – as you know, Josh, I've been writing for the Imaginative Conservative for nine years now, 
And I'm up to the point where I'm doing two pieces a week for a, a long time for those first kind of seven years I was doing one piece a week. And I, I realized that as we got to a certain point, I, I was close to something like 900,000 words that I'd written for TIC. And I, I'm now, as far as I know, I'm somewhere around a million, which is wow. insane. When you, <laughs> almost like a disease or something, some kind of psychological problem. Um, but I just, I started thinking about all these vignettes that I'd, I'd written and I thought it would be kind of fun to put them together as a book. And some of my favorite, just looking at other authors I really like, like Russell Kirk, some of my favorite books of his were ones where he was able to put together a variety of essays that he'd written and then kind of make it into a coherent whole. So I, I guess for me, the book was kind of a puzzle. It was kind of how do I how do I take these separate things I've written and then try and tie them together and make it into a cohesive whole, try and find some kind of narrative that holds it all together. Well, that 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 fits. I, as I read it, I was trying on the one hand. I was I thoroughly enjoyed each section of it, and I mean, some essays I thought were. I thought the there were several essays that you you've written entire books on those folks, and right. your right. your your six page version of Christopher Dawson or however many pages that chapter. They're like oh, no, that's right. there's such a depth in those pages, uh, and especially I love the essays about your grandparents. Those were those were oh, amazing. Yeah, uh, my grandparents meant everything to me. Um, I was trying to figure out, okay, what is it that by, I, I understood the first part. I was like, okay, the first part is laying out kind of a, some defining, here's what you mean by humanism. Here's what you mean by conservatism and so on. Right. And then the rest, was like, what, what holds these 27 chapters together? And at least what, what made sense in my head was that it really, you were sort of almost uh, playing a symphony, and and some chapters had larger parts and some chapters had smaller parts, but they all kind of blended together in this beautiful symphony of different voices all having a similar conversation stretched across a century. It it wasn't the tight unity of a monograph. It was it was a right. different kind of unity, but it all fit together very, very well, I thought. Thanks, Josh. You know, it's uh, partly I did that intentionally because I was trying to mimic Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind, because there he uses 29 figures. So that book is based on 29 vignettes and trying to pull that together. And I wasn't trying to do something as comprehensive or as deep as what Kirk was doing. But I, I have become convinced, and this actually goes back to my high school debate days, uh, I've become very convinced that one of the, the best ways to understand history and to figure out things like free will and, and what can we do and, and what kind of difference do we make is really to look at these individual lives. And, and you know, I did that with the Jackson class, too. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just really interested in trying to figure out, OK, here are these people who have no choice about where they find themselves. But then once they find themselves in those places, they have all the choices in the world, even if they may be rough choices or if there's all kinds of, you know, like my grandparents with World War II going on, you know, or, or many of these figures who are in here having to deal with all kinds of Alexander Solzhenitsyn trying to oh, deal with Gulag. And, you know, I mean, they're extreme. Some of them have to deal with actual blatant evil right in front of them. Others just have to make choices about, well, how do I take these kind of not so good situations and make something good out of them. So for me, that's what ties it together, trying to figure out how does the kind of human person or the individual properly understood, how do they respond not only to their own life, but to the lives around them as well. So that, that was really kind of the goal. And, and the whole title of Beyond Tenebrae was to get past kind of, you know, Tenebrae is the the Catholic celebration of, not celebration, it's really more of a mournful mm -hmm. uh, acknowledgement, but it's the recognition that Christ is absent from the world from Good Friday until Easter morning. So Tenebrae is that darkness. And uh, part of what I was trying to do was to get beyond that darkness and see what can individuals do. Uh, and especially, not that we're saints by any means, clearly we're not. But are there, there saintly things that happen and could we make these good decisions even in the midst of bad? That's a, that's, that, that's, that's a beautiful – I thought that's a beautiful metaphor I thought of, of really – and it captured the, the idea of this present moment I thought pretty well and really of the darkness of the 20th century. And yet yeah. you have this there, – there's throughout this, these – I thought these lives worked very effectively to have this note of hope throughout the darkness and that – even if right Thanks. now we're, 
at least it seems like our current moment, we're flustered with so many things that should be self-evident, but we're consumed in debates about pronouns of all things that (laughs) should be self-evident, but for many people are no longer self-evident. There's still these lights that are burning in the darkness and they're, they're not just philosophical abstractions. They're real lives that are benefited through that. Yeah. Very well put. Well, um, do do help us with some of the definitions because you use some terms that I, I'd love just to, to help our audience be familiar with. Um, sure. And where we're, I I don't entirely know who the audience for the show is. Ethan and I make this show mainly hoping that high school debaters will listen. And I'm sure you're making your own audience. So that's uh, great. Probably. We also pretty. I, I try pretty hard just to get anyone and everyone to listen to the show. Right. And. Uh, but there's at least some element of this show that, in my mind, is a bit of subversive conservatism. I'm hoping that we attract people who would never call themselves conservative or mm-hmm. use the language. So sure. help us with the uh, uh, with the with a couple couple definitions. Uh, first, with humanism, because you go to pretty pretty strong lengths to uh, defend the term and to to really try and rescue that term from the way secular humanists use it. So how how would you explain this concept of humanism that really is a huge piece of this work? You know, the the easiest way, Josh, is just to think of humanists as someone who's a humanist is someone who studies the humanities. Really, that's the the most simple definition. And I think it's about the most accurate definition. So for me, a proper kind of humanism goes back to Heraclitus. It goes back to Socrates. it, It goes back to ancient Greece and that discovery or at least that attempt to try and define who and what we are uh, in the in the 20th century, that term became so ubiquitous during the, the first part of the 20th century that all kinds of forces started vying for it. So you get Marxist humanists and secular humanists and you know, part of, I, I think, a reaction. And I, in some ways, I'm sure there's a bit of a mischievous side in me. But I know that when I mention humanism to usually a Christian audience, there's always a kind of gasp or a reaction. Like, well, that's, <laughs> that's just terrible, right? That's humanism is anti-God. And humanism's not, I mean, traditionally, it's not anti-God. It actually is extremely pro-God, but it also tries to recognize that within the human person, there is both good and bad. So that, I think it would be hard, though there are, I mean, Calvin was a humanist, but I think within certain forms of Christianity, humanism probably rubs Christians the wrong way, simply because it does seem to emphasize so much the human as opposed to God. Uh, but it shouldn't do that. I mean, really, even with Calvinism, Calvin, I think, or at least Calvinism would be most prone because of the total depravity of man to be very leery. But Calvin's first book was you know, a meditation on the poetry of Seneca. So you know, he was really looking at humanism and what, what the humanists were doing at the time, at least the Stoics. So, I mean, really, for me, I think that humanism is a kind of way to explore the humanities and to understand the human person as higher than the animals, but lower than God and lower than the angels. So really trying to find our place almost in justice of what humanism is. But I do think at this point, humanism has become so corrupt by certain forces and uh, certain ideologies that I think it is necessary to have the descriptive Christian humanism in front of it. A hundred years ago, the Christian wouldn't have been necessary, but now, now it is because that word has taken on such a life of its own. Which is not to say that everyone that you then include in the biographical sketches is necessarily a Christian humanist. No, no I, that's right. But I, they're allies in some way. Okay. I, I, I have to tell you, I was very surprised to see Margaret Atwood in here. Oh, that, yeah. That threw me for a loop. I was like, what on earth? She like, would probably be surprised to see herself <laughs> in there. But I did. You had a great section in there where you talked about like just her appearance. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, I, um, I I think there's a lot that's very good, and I, I've had a chance to read through a lot of her interviews, and she's a very interesting, complex person. Mm-hmm. Not at all what I think the media portrays her to be. Okay. And I like the fact she's a troublemaker. Uh, well, I mean, I, she's a troublemaker uh, for the right things. I think. I, I think so. I've, I've avoided. I haven't read her most recent novel that that's picking up after The Handmaid's I Tale. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've avoided that. Too. I've got it, but I haven't read it. I'm, I'm a little worried because I, I I enjoyed The Handmaid's Tale the first time I read it. I, I did too. I, I watched the first season of the Hulu series. I didn't watch. 
Oh, it's so dark. I mean, it and it's yeah. just so. There's just no, there is no hope there, and I, I, I didn't see where it could go. So I, I'm, I'm afraid that her novel may have been shaped by the direction of the TV show, but it would not shock me. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, let's back up to another uh, definition word. This, is, uh, sure. um, this word conservative. Uh, it, it shows up in a lot of places. It, it's a major part of your scholarship, I know, and it's all over this book. And yet, not every one of I mean, uh, you have one guy in here who uh, Friedrich Hayek blatantly denies being a conservative. Sure. And I, I, if I remember, if I followed your thought correctly, you kind of want to call him a conservative, even though he doesn't like the term. And you kind of explained mm. more of his because he was coming from an Eastern European or Central European context. Right. He, he kind of had a different meaning for that. So help our audience know what what does it mean to be a conservative, and why is this word significant? Yeah, I think the the easiest way, Josh, and it's kind of like with Christian humanism, there were a lot of people in the 20th century who self-identified as Christian humanist, but they were very different one from another, especially in their politics. And I think conservatism is a similar kind of word because there are a lot of people over the last hundred years who are self-identified as conservatives, but we wouldn't necessarily see them in, in the same light, and we wouldn't even see them necessarily as as fitting together that well, but they certainly, you know, at least they claim that term. I, and I mean here in the same way that I meant humanism at the most basic level, I mean mm. conservatism is the most basic level too. And that is that to conserve the best of what we've inherited and to try and pass that on. So, you know, for me, it's Edmund Burke and the idea of the eternal contract that we are all in this uh, those who've been born, those who are alive today, and those who are still yet to be born. I mean, I think all of those people in some way fit into this. So it's kind of a, a large span. When I say conservative, it's not just of the past, but it's conserving certain things from the past, but also conserving like, human dignity and trying to figure out what that is. So I don't really mean it as a political term, though I know it's almost impossible to separate it from politics, especially given where the current you know, everything is at the moment and the, the labeling and the kind of chaos and the anger and the hatred that's out there right now. Uh, certainly, I think conservatism has been a word that's been hijacked by first the radio personalities and now the politicos in all kinds of ways. Sure. But I, I, I do love that that idea, Burke's idea of the eternal contract of the the uh, if I remember the phrasing right. It's the the living the the dead and the unborn are all and the yet bound, to be born. The yet yeah. to be born. They're all bound together where yeah. the living receive what they what is passed to them and they conserve it so that they can pass it on to the yet to be born. It's a beautiful idea. I love how that, that really orients a, a certain attitude towards the past. That's not yeah, that's completely right. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis talks about how it's not necessarily uncritical. It's not that we're taking oh, everything, but instead right. it's rather, okay, how do we curate this and recognize what's of value and make sure that those yet to be born have access to what's of value? It's such a beautiful concept. I, I love what you just said, Josh. The idea of curating, I think, is a perfect, right? That's what we do through prudence. We judge. Mm -hmm. Is this good? Is it not good? Is it partially good and it needs to be reformed? Yeah, I mean, I think those are the things that we have to do. But yeah, curating is a great way. If you don't mind, I'll probably use that at oh, some point. Sure, That's please a great do. way of thinking about it. Well, it's, really it's, well, and, and, it's, I, and I love, too, you remember C.S. Lewis said, if we don't do that, we're guilty of chronological snobbery, right? We give our own generation some kind of benefit that it really doesn't deserve. Hmm. Uh, simply because we're living in the moment, we tend to privilege it. But no. there has to be more to it than just what we have at the moment. Which, uh, which was another piece that all of these people that you wrote about did have in common that they're they would all I think they would all be in agreement with Lewis that there's a lot of value in reading old books and that that part of that conservation comes through the reading of old books yeah I would agree Josh I lost you there for a second sorry but I, I, That's I okay. totally agree yep. um, I think that that value of being able to talk to people in the past and then present that to people in the future. It's just critical to this understanding of a good society. Now, as I read through Beyond Tenebrae, there were a lot of names that I, I recognized. Uh, Irving Babbitt, Willa Cather, Tolkien, Christopher Dawson. Sure. I, I was not surprised that Russell Kirk managed to get two chapters. <laughs> that, that seemed fitting. Uh, and, of course, Hayek, Bradbury. 
Uh, but there were a bunch of people I'd never heard of before. I, mm-hmm. I don't know T.E. Holm. I, I don't know Canon B.I. Bell, Theodore Haker, uh, Wolf Kilby. I, I really want to read the book you cited by Clyde Kilby about his, oh, his, his, his summer, summer with, with Tolkien. It sounded like so much fun. Yeah. Um, are, are there other people that you thought about adding and decided not to? Or I know you said you kind of curated your own list from essays you've right. previously written. Are there other other names that you would add in maybe a later volume of expanding on the idea? Or is you know, this, I'd is love I would love to do a little bit more. For example, on C.S. Lewis and Owen Barfield, so some of the different inklings. I think that there could have been separate essays. There are a couple of conservatives too. Um, Robert Nisbet, I'd love to have more on, but I, I'm doing some things on Nisbet on uh, in other projects. Okay. So there are a couple of those figures, but. I love coming across, so I, I never would have known, for example, Theodore Hacker at all until I had come across him in Dawson, and Dawson had really praised him, and I thought, well, I should check this guy out, and then when I read his little book he wrote in 1934 on Virgil as kind of the defining figure of Western civilization, it was just, it was mind-boggling, and then I found out he was this anti-Nazi, and he was in the underground, and it's just like, what, I mean, how great could this guy be? He loves Virgil and he hates the Nazis. What more can you ask for? And then, I mean, he tragically died. The U.S. accidentally bombed him, you know, during the the raid on Munich in 1945. So he almost survived the war, but an Allied bomb hit his house. You know, I mean, it's just crazy. So, uh, I mean, these guys, they all have stories to them. Um, T.E. Holm was one of those guys that I came across probably a decade ago. And the more I read him, the more I kind of fell in love with the guy. This was a, he was a a mentor to T.S. Eliot, and he was really the founder of Images Poetry. And he has this salon in England right before World War I. And then as soon as the war starts, he volunteers and he dies in the trenches. I mean, it's just like, you can't make these characters up, right? They're just amazing. So, you know, what? and and Dawson had said, and Elliot, too, they both said that that T.E. Holm was the greatest man of their generation, and he would have changed the world had he lived. And what do you, how can you not go right with that, right? There's got to be something there. Oh, man. High praise. Those are the kind, I I love finding people like that. Sister Madelabel Wolf, um, I I had also not been that familiar with until I realized that she was the president of St. Mary's, and she'd studied with Tolkien and Lewis, so then... I got her memoir and, you know, it's just, it's kind of following one trail after another and discovering these people and really falling in love with them and then finding out who they love and moving on. You had a, there's a, I just found the line I wanted to read. You had this great line on page 127 about uh, Sister Madeleva Wolf. Uh, given her own background as a poetess, a farmer, a nun, and a university president, she often answered the question as to what her favorite books were with these three, the Bible, the Oxford English Dictionary, and various seed catalogs. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was wonderful. I'm glad you caught that, Josh. Thanks. Those are, again, I love finding stuff like that. Those uh, are just such great quotes. Oh, the, the the you had the the in Kilby's chapter the the stuff about uh, Tolkien being so disorganized killed me. Yeah. I I had to stop and read. I read the paragraph to Jen about uh, when Kilby wanted to rationalize the library and told her like, but then I'd never find anything again. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you can imagine it was just stacks and stacks of books oh, and goodness. papers. Yeah, I'm uh, sure it looked like a hobbit hole. Must have, must <laughs> yeah, have, definitely. Let's do talk about Eric Vagelin for just a moment. Sure. Um, I have wanted to read Vagelin for years, and yeah. I have tried to read Vagelin on a couple of different yeah. occasions. Um, the uh, I remember there was um, – uh, I don't know if you remember Dakota Fuller. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Dakota took a class. We were roommates one year at Hillsdale, and he um, yeah. he took a class where he read The New Science of Politics, and I was like, oh, maybe I should try it. I could not make heads or tails of Vagelin, but I read your chapter about Vagelin and I understood what you had to say about Eric Vagelin. Uh, so uh, could, could you just speak to, to Vagelin for a moment? Who was he? What was the, what was the importance of his ideas? Yeah. Um, if you want to, if you want to tra- tackle Metaxi and where that falls in, that would be amazing. Uh, but, but help, help our audience know a little bit about Eric Vagelin. What should we know? 
Yeah, so he was born in 1901 and died in 1985. And a, a very, he, he actually lectured at Hillsdale a couple of times. He taught at Notre Dame and at the University of Dallas. But he was a, a pretty curmudgeonly kind of weird figure. I think he was brilliant, but he was truly odd. He was a friend of Hayek's when they were young men. And they were both in the Mises circle together in Austria. But Vogelin and Hayek, of course, yeah, the, there was like a, a bit of a divide in that Mises circle between those who were Christian and those who were Jewish. But Vogelin was a Lutheran. Uh, interestingly enough, even though he's from Austria, you'd think he would be a Catholic, but was actually a Lutheran and was pretty devout about it. But he had come across a, a book by Hans Urs von Balthasar, one of the great the, kind of unsung theologians of the 20th century. And there was a, a, actually a footnote in one of von Balthasar's works about the meaning of Prometheus and the idea of symbols. And Vogelin just became absolutely entranced with this idea of permanent symbols in society that always exist, but they become corrupt over time. And so you and I, in Vogelin's way of thinking, you and I could see something like a Liberty Bell and it immediately resonates with us because that symbol is so important to who and what we are. But it also means that someone like a demagogue could take that symbol and make it something other than what it really is. And that, that was the kind of thing that Vogelin was always worried about, that we would take these myths and symbols and do evil with them because they had such power for us. So a lot of what he argued was try a, a return to the basic element of what a symbol was. And he actually argued that the American Revolution was in and of itself one of the great moments of what he called anamnesis, where we would remember what is properly true. And he was, a, a, even though he was not an American, he was a huge fan of the revolution and really thought that it attempted to right the world. But he, he essentially argues that things like communism and fascism, the reason they meant so much is because they used Christian symbolism, but they warped it. And so by using those kind of true things but warping them, this is really more or less the definition of evil for Boglin, that that would happen. So Metaxi is a little bit, um, you know, to get into that, Josh, it's a little bit complicated, but <laughs> Metaxi essentially meant, um, I mean, it, it, it's a fancy way of saying you and I are both flesh and spirit. Okay. And so the Metaxi is simply, it's a way as a, of a Christian trying to balance how we are both spiritual beings and physical beings at the same time. Metaxi, and I'm not even sure that's the proper way of pronouncing it in the Greek, but this in-between. And so Vogelin thought a lot of our errors in society came when we were either too spiritual or too material, and that because of the incarnation, we had to work diligently to balance the material and the spiritual. So that was his big... There's, that's Vogelin in two minutes. <laughs> that's, that's excellent, excellent. I know there's we, we may have lost some people there, but that's okay. No, they'll, they'll, sorry. They'll, they'll, that's all right. Uh, that 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 made sense, and I know he's he's uh, uh, he is someone who is of great intellectual caliber and respect. I mean, I've I've, I've followed the journal Anamnesis for a few years, oh, yeah. and yeah. Uh, I've I've seen the uh, I think it's the Ciceronian Society out of yeah, Louisiana State. Yeah, I, I know there there's uh, and there's a couple different Vogelin websites that are dedicated right. to preserving his work and applying his ideas. Uh, he's he's a weighty figure, so I, I appreciate you helping us kind of wade through oh, some I, of that. My pleasure. I mean, he's worth knowing, and there are things, Josh. I mean, I would recommend his his Chicago lectures, the New Science of Politics. It is probably a pretty good way, uh, place to start. But he also gave a series of lectures at the University of Munich, I think, mm. in 1958 called something like Science, Gnosticism, and Politics. And that's okay. probably the best, best introduction. He met, um, at the time, he met Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict. Oh. Ratzinger attended those lectures and was very influenced by that, too. So all these weird Christian humanist connections. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I wonder if we could uh, just kind of go through a couple of passages from from the book. I just get your thoughts on these. Uh, there were there were several places where I thought there was uh, just uh, either you had great questions or really good lines. And I thought, uh, a couple of those from the introduction. Uh, this is the top of uh, introduction, page twenty. Uh, you ask, what happens then when a small republic asks the world to remember what is good and true and beautiful? How can one serve as leaven to the rest, persuading the others to remember? 
uh, is this the Ciceronian republicanism coming out in, in, in this book? I mean, and, and with the, the liberal arts view of the good, the true, and the beautiful kind of still, still there. Yeah, rather, yeah, rather blatantly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, you know, that idea of no matter what, we can have this republic of letters, the liberal arts, that we can really continue this great conversation. And even if we're kind of forgotten, I mean, I, you know, I'm always, when I, when I think, Josh, of, and it's always humbling, you know, just finishing a course on Western civilization, Western heritage, uh, just finishing it today at Hillsdale. You know, when you think about some of the people that we teach, you know, people like Socrates and Cicero, you know, they all really, you know, not only did they give their lives, but they came at the end of something. And I, I think in many ways, you know, Socrates is so powerful, not just because he's a martyr to what he believes, but because there's a nostalgia in what he's doing, too. He's trying you know, Greece, Athens is already done when he's executed. And he's, he's remembering the Athens of his youth. He's remembering what it could have been and what it should have been. Mm. And I, I think in a lot of ways, that's what the liberal arts is meant to do. Um, even in a society that thinks the liberal arts are worthless and they, they mock them, you know, our job is still the same. It's, it's to keep reminding people and to play that role, even when it's not a popular role. I think that's, you know, the, the, the greatest liberal arts thinkers in history have always gone against the grain. And many of them, again, Socrates, Row, Thomas More, they paid with their lives. And I mean, there's something very noble in that, but I think it's also, yeah, I mean, it's inspiring, but it's disheartening. And it's all those things at once. Uh, well, that, that note of struggle seemed to be kind of where you ended the introduction uh, with the uh, the line, in a time of troubles, they weathered the storm, they preserved the best of what had come before them. They carried the one light away from the abyss and through the darkness. Uh, that that line reminded me of uh, the the um, part of Chesterton's Ballad of the White Horse, where um, Alfred has the vision. He encounters Mary, and he comes away from that with this message that the the sky is growing darker and the sea right. is rising higher. I come seeking Christian men who want to die. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there, there's yeah. no like, yeah. come on, guys, we're going to win. It's like, yeah. all right, who's ready to sign up for a worthy cause in which we're all going to die? Yes, that's right, Josh. <laughs> and, I, and I love that part of Chesterton, too. Yeah, I'm totally with you. It's such a great – I actually – that line, um, my own line, for what it's worth, I took that. It's from Ulysses. It's it's from Tennyson's. And mm. the, the, when, when Tennyson – when Ulysses asks, you know, who are we? I mean, we once struggled with gods. Right. Clearly, we can do something good still. So that's where I was getting that. That was a play on that. Oh, so, so good. But maybe hopefully a more Christianized paganism. There. Oh, of course. Of course. Uh, on, on page 29, you gave us some great stuff about what it t means to be a biographer. Uh, well, there's where was that? which line is that? Um, the biographer makes the fact the story and along the way. The story becomes the fact. What then is the key to a good biography? I believe the only true good biographer or autobiographer, as I believe they employ the same gifts and talents, is the one who is endowed with the ability and the will to entertain serious imagination. Hmm. What do you mean by serious imagination and how has that worked out in your own work as a biographer? Yeah, so I mean it this way, Josh. Uh, by imagination here, I mean specifically that if I were to study you I could put myself in your place. And I, I don't just mean in the kind of like trite way of saying, would I walk in your shoes? I mean, can I actually see the world through your eyes? Can I understand what, what kind of struggles you have and what kind of successes you have and the way that you view things? To me, that's what a good biographer does. Um, and it, it means that you know, no matter what, at least from my perspective, even if I were to write your story, Josh, it would still be Brad writing Josh's story. So you're still a, a good biographer. There are always two personalities involved. There's the personality who's being written upon and the person who's doing high value but has to be neutral is completely messing up. Uh, I think part of the art is it is a person speaking to a person. And then you've got the reader, who's a third person, who's the audience. And it's really meant to be a conversation. The, the third person the audience should be reading the conversation between the subject and the biographer, mm. in my mind. I think otherwise, if we're just trying to repeat 
what what was already there, uh, I think it loses its soul. It becomes really just too materialistic and doesn't allow for a real spirituality to to kind of to reign in all of that. So is that is is that the process that you're trying to evoke when you sit down? I know your most recent biography, if I'm getting this right, is the biography of Andrew Jackson. Right. I mean, were right. were you trying to kind of be in Andrew Jackson's soul as best as you could and express I was. that? I don't know if I succeeded, <laughs> uh, but he was so honest. Actually, it was kind of hard not to. Yeah, you know, I felt like I got to know him right away mm. just because he was so he's brutal and violent and disgusting at times. But he was so so honest. And you know, there are people I've written on. For example, my dissertation. Uh, there were people in my dissertation I still don't understand, and I don't think I understood then. I don't think I'll ever totally understand. Uh, people that I, I think I got away with, like I wrote a biography of, of Charles Carroll of Carrollton, one of the founders, and I don't think I ever completely got him, but I think I got enough of him to at least tell his story. But there was something in him that I just had a really hard time relating to. But people like Russell Kirk, I felt like I knew him right away. Tolkien, I felt like I've known since I was a little kid. So, you know, it, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And maybe I'm fooling myself as well, but there's definitely a feeling there. It's like, no, when I started writing Jackson, it's like, I get this guy. And partly just because there's no dishonesty. <laughs> it's like, whatever he says is what he believes. The guy had no filter at all. Oh. <laughs> there's something so amazing was, about fun. You know, even when he did things I didn't like, it was fun to read him just because I could get it and understand it. There is something amazing about that that attempt to get into a different mindset, a different time and place, and trying to see the world through different eyes. That's yeah, amazing. And I, I, you know, Josh, amazing. I'm sure you're the same way. I could never write a biography of someone I hated. I, mm. I just I could never spend that kind of time with Hitler or Stalin. Um, and I, you know, I admire people who can do it, but that it, I just that would be way too much evil and flirting with too much evil to do something like that. I think I'm only really good. Uh, personally, I'm only good when I'm writing about people I like. That um, reminds me of the uh, Dr. Gamble took us through. Um, well, I was going to mention Gamble. Yeah, he, he, <laughs> we can't do this episode without bringing him in somehow. I mean, he, uh, <laughs> I, I remember his philosophy of history class. He took us through so carefully and so well, built that class to we read, we've we've gone through all these different models of ways people yeah. consider history. And then we land on Butterfield and for Butterfield, uh, the whole goal of history is compassion. And it's, right. it's the point where you understand the historical person to the extent that, uh, the, the critical judgment sort of melts away in your understanding and all that's left is love for the person who is in these moments, no matter what choices the person makes. Mm -hmm. And, I still don't know what to do with some of the obviously right. – like, what do you do with Stalin and Hitler and Mao? They, right. they don't really fit in a Butterfieldian sense of studying right. history. Right. There's a definite romance in that. Right. But for every – but for the vast majority, I, I've just – that's that's been something I've come back to year in and year out to think of. Yeah. And it's the same idea I find now. I ended up teaching more literature than I have history over the years. And the sure. same thing happens with getting into a novel and understanding a character. Yes. Yes. No, absolutely, Josh. And isn't that great? I mean, that, oh. that to me, I think that's a real a moment of historical consciousness mm -hmm. to recognize that. And Gamble, I was going to bring up because, I mean, he, first of all, he's a gentleman scholar, right? But he's one of those, one of those rare individuals who I think can be extremely critical and, and maintain all of his morality. I, mean, I, I don't, I can't see Richard compromising on somebody simply because, you know, I could find myself writing a biography of Woodrow Wilson and starting to like him because, you know, I really? just start sympathizing with him. Oh yeah. No, I, I'm not saying Ooh. that's why I wouldn't do it. Yeah. You know, and I, Richard wouldn't do that. Richard would maintain his, his critical stance and I admire him for that, uh, but I wouldn't be good at that. Oh, uh, I don't I know. I, a few times I've tried to get close to Wilson. I just, I can't get past the progressive. Somebody, I better like him. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, oh, on page 79. Let me ask you one more question for the text, then we'll, we'll shift. Yeah, sure. Oh, this is great, Josh. Um, uh, you ask a really good, I thought, just critical diagnosis question of our, of our particular moment in time on page 79. Uh, have we 
traded our own individual taste for those of the PR men, the ad men, the marketers, the <laughs> sellers of ready-made standardization, the promoters of the new and improved rather than the good and the true. Have the corporations become our new gods? That was a great. I mean, those were penetrating questions. Um, what 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 prompted you to include those questions? Yeah, so part of that comes from from C.S. Lewis, uh, and especially from the Abolition of Man, where he talks a lot about the you know, what happens with our secondary nature when we become so used to the ads and the constant bombardment of propaganda. But it also, you know, it's from reading Orwell and trying to think about what is propaganda versus what is art. So that, there's, I mean, some of those things, Josh, you know, I. I've, a couple of those things I vented, and I'm glad that they came off maybe more intellectual than I meant them to be. <laughs> That's good. Um, but some of those were just kind of me, rather than saying blatantly, you stupid idiot corporation, stop this. It was like, let's let's think about this philosophically. So I was probably just being a little, you know, maybe a little bit polite about things I was angry about, if that makes sense. Oh, it, that makes perfect sense. And I, uh, am I correct in remembering that you do have a, you have a libertarian streak as, as well. Very that, strong. Okay. But it's also, yeah. I mean, for me, Josh, and I know you and I have talked about this before, but one of the greatest things that comes out of 20th century conservatism was its hatred of conformity. Mm-hmm. And that for me, when I was a kid, um, and especially when I was in, in high school and then in college, it was so important for me to belong to something that didn't conform, if that makes sense. I mean, oh, I know there's sense. belonging, but I mean, and that, you know, debate was unusual. I mean, how many kids did debate? And, you know, we used to walk around with our, and I, I'm a member of the NFL, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, ask me about the real NFL. And I, I still got actually those buttons are probably right back there. I got some <laughs> of those old, um, you know, my, I some, great things about if you want to date somebody, ask it a debater. <laughs> you know, really, this is stuff that you couldn't get away with. But in the 80s, it was funny. Um, no, I mean, that, and, and I loved that. I loved being a part of the squad. But then we were a squad of individuals. And that for me, you know, in the Reagan era, conservatism was about being your own person. It wasn't about conforming to the government or to a corporation, you know, or some bureaucracy. It was about being yourself. And I I suppose you might call that libertarian, but for me growing up, that was just conservative. Mm. Yeah. So that kind of individualist strain. Oh, I think that's, that's, there's definitely a lot. I think there's a lot of value in that. I've, I've been more sensitive uh, social media has gotten better and better at correctly targeting me with their ads. I, I've actually found myself clicking on a couple of Facebook things, knowing that like every time I click on this, I know I'm informing their algorithm of how better yes, to target me. Right. But it still looks interesting. Right <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, over on page 115, you make a very interesting statement about uh, Owen Barfield and, and the mm-hmm. role he places of, of poetry in society. Um, Barfield, therefore, holds the poets as one of the most important offices in Western civilization. Without the development of poetry and the recognition of the necessity of the poet, the Western world will become lost in scientific or scientistic nominalism and pragmatism, and the organic unity of the West will be lost, perhaps permanently. Would you agree with Barfield here? Is this? Uh, do you think he's yeah, right I, about I, the role of the poet? You know, that, that's Barfield from his senior thesis at Oxford. Uh, yeah. As I mean, an that, undergraduate a, senior? His senior thesis. He was 21 when oh he wrote that. Oh, my goodness. Um, it's, an, it's a book called Poetic Diction. It's one of my favorite books. I, I, I read it. I've reread it many, many times. And he published it a few years after he graduated, but it was his senior thesis. And I, I think his, you know, it's so much a part of the Inklings, that idea of, we can teach people through Narnia or through Middle Earth or, you know, and then I mean, growing up with that, it's just, it's been everything. No, I'm at age 52. I mean, this has just been a part of my life as far back as I can remember, Josh, this, this understanding of poetry and the poetic imagination. So I also think that's also uh, a really important thing to kind of find that conformity to have that poetic insight to things. And, you know, think about what you guys do. I mean, with debate, debate is you find out A, B, C, D, and E, but you've got to figure out what connects them. And it's that poetic imagination that allows you to connect them. 
And that, you know, to me, that was one of the greatest things I got out of debate hmm. was it's not just the facts. Anybody can learn the facts. It's how do you connect those and make a case out of them? And, uh, you know, that, that's hard work for the affirmative and the negative. It's very hard work. And I loved it. I mean, I still, I cherish those. I can still see myself back in the summer of 83 making an affirmative case where I had all my four by six cards around me and I sat yes. you know, cross-legged and I made my case. You know, I, 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 I have great memories of those days. And I think I still do the same thing. It's just usually more up here than it is with my four by six cards. So it was, uh, it was my uh, senior year at Hillsdale. I did a uh, programmed oral interpretation piece where I was working with a lot of poetry. And the, the theme that tied it all together was uh, the Greek word mythos for, for story. And I was yeah. looking at the way that um, story creates the world that we experience. It was, I've, I've, I've had a bad, it's been literarily quite fun and theologically it's very unhealthy, but I've had this flirtation with postmodernism for years. Oh. That, 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 that was <laughs> one of those. Uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Uh, it's more Neil Gaiman than Nietzsche for, for me. Oh, but sure. it's, they're, they're, they're similar in, in some respects. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gaiman's just much more positive and British. Um, yeah, but right. as part of that, I remember uh, working with a poem by B.H. Fairchild that was uh, called Body and Soul. And by the end of the poem, you discover the punchline is that the whole poem is about Mickey Mantle coming up to the plate and no one recognizes that it's Mickey Mantle. They think it's just this little shrimp of a guy. I don't know and, that. That's great. And, and he wow. just knocks the ball so far out and it's like these old grizzled miners who are playing on a Sunday afternoon and here's this punk kid who says, Hey, I want to join and it's Mickey Mantle. But That's the fantastic the line that I'm thinking of was uh goes, um, those are the facts and the facts are true, but the facts are not the truth. Yeah. And that one that one stuck with me because I think there there's a, a good one. There's a distinction there between we can know all the facts but we have to be able to put the facts into an interpretive position such that we can actually determine the truth of them. And yeah. that truth is greater than the parts of the facts somehow. Um, I like it a lot. That was Fairchild? That was Fairchild. B.H. Fairchild. Okay. Um, I'll, 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 I'll try and find a copy. If I can find a copy of the poem, I'll, I'll send you a link to that it. That's great. Um, Thanks, Josh. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you. By the time I got to the end of the book, I, I will confess the uh, the conclusion left me. Um, uh, the conclusion was a little gloomy. Uh, where, oh. where 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 do you see where do you see Christian yeah. humanism going from here? Are there current Christian humanists who are writing and and keeping up yeah. the faith? And where 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 do you see the future of all of this? Yeah, there there are good people like James Matthew Wilson, who's a poet, um, is fantastic. And uh, I mean, we have musicians like one of my one of my closest friends, Kevin McCormick, who's a great poet and classical guitarist and people like Patrick Deneen at Notre Dame. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people out there who really are doing good things. But we are there's a zeitgeist. There's a we're in a moment right now of this intense anger in society. And I, I would guess it's probably a lot like what it was like in 1968 and 69. Hmm. And we'll get over it. I mean, we're, it, you know, there'll be damage, but we'll get over it. And 10 years from now, I would guess we'll be in a better position. Um, you, you think about something like what happened with Reagan coming in the 1980s. No one would have expected that in 1968. No one would have predicted that. Not even in probably 1978 would they have predicted that. And I, I think that God surprises us and he, he blesses us with certain people and, and certain reminders from time to time. And, and we'll probably do one. Not, not that I know the mind of God or, or have the right to, to demand anything. Uh, but certainly I think, you know, just looking at the way things have gone historically, we're at a low point, but we'll come out of it. But, but we do, it's going to take, I think for those of us who believe in this stuff and actually, you know, the, the romantics among us, you, me, others, I mean, our, our work's really cut out for us for the next few years and, and we're going to be lonely. We're going to be really lonely. Um, it, may, it may get lonelier before it gets better. Which is a, I mean, that, 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 I think that's a realistic depiction. Um, I, I, I'm quite happy to be at a uh, less than traditional residential PhD program with Faulkner. But one of the things that led me to that program oh, was a, oh, Josh. well, I, it was just a general, I mean, it's pretty gloomy to look at the academy and look at what, where the academy is today yeah. and kind of what, yeah. where, where that's going. Um, get, get your degree because you want your degree. That's, 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 that's the important thing. <laughs> 
That's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, well, uh, with all of that, as uh, I'm, I'm very excited about Beyond Tenebrae. I'm excited to kind of see how what what uh, if there's, uh, where 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 folks go with that. Um, now, I, I I do want to give you a chance to uh, on the show if I could ask you to uh, just. Uh, Long-time listeners will, will not be surprised by this because um, uh, I've tried to plug Hillsdale quite frequently on the show because I'm convinced I need at least one of my students to wind up at Hillsdale. And <laughs> nice. They keep applying everywhere else, so I'm just going to keep telling them they need to at least apply to Hillsdale. But Absolutely. Uh, but, Brad, you, you've had you've been at Hillsdale for, for how long now? How many, how many years? Oh, my, you I, I, this is my 21st year. So I, I'm sure along the way there have been opportunities to go teach at other places. I know you've you've had at least one sabbatical year when I've been paying attention. I'm sure you've probably right. had at least two or three at this point. I would yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. What What's kept you at Hillsdale? I mean, what is it about um, this small liberal arts college in the middle of nowhere in southern Michigan? I mean, the town yeah. is not the reason to be at Hillsdale. I, I would. You assume. know, the, the hardest thing for me, Josh, has been growing up in Kansas and Deidre being from Texas. We grew up in places that really, really cared about living in that place. Mm. So I miss Kansas, and uh, Deidre misses Texas a lot, and that's been hard. But uh, other than that, you know, I have colleagues like Mark Kaltoff and Paul Marino and Richard Gamble, you know, Steve Smith. I mean, I just I have an amazing group of colleagues who support me, and I support them, and we care about each other, and we care about common things. We care about the good, the true, and the beautiful. And, you know, most importantly for me, Josh, is, I mean, it's been people like you. Uh, I just had, you know, 20 years of incredible students, students mm. who care about ideas, who take the world seriously, and who want to change it, not in the kind of wave a magic wand, but who actually want to do the hard work and make change. And that, that has meant everything to me, you know, a place where I can actually speak my mind and be myself and yet believe in the mission of the college. Yeah. I, it, it's been fantastic. Yeah. Oh. Just, just great. And I can't imagine being at another place. I really enjoyed my year at Colorado and I like my students there and I like my colleagues, but it wasn't Hillsdale. Mm. You know, the scenery was really nice, <laughs> like really, really, really nice, but I missed my students and I missed my colleagues a lot. That's great to hear. Uh, well, uh, what what advice would you offer to uh, two different audiences? Because uh, I, I remember you were saying before we started recording that uh, your son Nathaniel is now a junior at, at the That's college. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you you've now seen the college from the perspective of a parent who is going through the uh, college application process. Because I assume Nathaniel right. at least did apply to a few other places yeah, as he did. well. Right. So what, what advice would you offer first to students thinking about college and what they should be looking for in a college? Uh, but then what, would you offer any advice to parents as they're kind of helping their children navigate that whole process? Yeah, you know, definitely visit every place that you're thinking about. Um, I would never, ever just go to a place after being accepted without having checked it out. I mean, checking out the student body, checking out the physical campus, figuring out what classrooms are like. I think, you know, even if someone comes for a day or two, I think they can get a real feel for the college. I mean, we're not exactly subtle, right? <laughs> we, no. <laughs> I think you can, you can learn a lot um, and you can see what type of student is here very quickly. Uh, but I would also be really, you know, I would be leery. And you're right. I mean, we did have to go through this process. And with Gretchen, too, uh, who's now a freshman at the college. And, and we've got Maria Grace coming up. She's still two years away. But it, it's interesting. I think one of the things we were shocked by was how gimmicky places have gotten. Even good places, the way that they sell themselves is so cheap. And, you know, it's all about what they can do for you, not what you can do for them. It's not about what this place means. It's what kind of job you can get. And those things are not unimportant. I mean, they're important, but there are ways to do it. Uh, you know, one of the, the best ways you'll get a good job is loving what you do. And if you're just going through a training program just to get there, you're never going to love it. It will always be something you're trained for. And that, I think, you know, it's one of the things that the liberal arts has always understood that people who are not liberal arts have never understood. And that is that you've got to love what you do. And you've got to, if you're not doing what you love, it just is not, you're not going to be great at it ever, ever. You're not going to be great at it. And you may be really proficient, but you'll never be great. And I, I just think that's something that, that people really seriously. Um, so I don't know if that helps, Josh, but no, that's, that would be that's my great. advice. So visit and take seriously what the college is saying to you, definitely. 
I think those are those are great pieces of advice, and I know. Uh, I, I ended up at Hillsdale primarily because we did exactly that. My dad and I came up and visited. We uh, actually did the same thing for Grove City College, uh, but neither my yeah. dad nor I were at the time. I think we've both gotten better at this since then, but we were not great at long-term yeah. planning. We just kind of flew up and dropped in <laughs> in, uh, Pennsylvania, in Grove City, Pennsylvania, and they didn't really know what to do with us. They... They, they didn't really arrange a tour. It was cold and it was not terribly hospitable. But we arrived at Hillsdale. We did the same thing. We didn't really plan ahead and they took great care of us. Turns out they were ready for you. They, yeah. Well, they just, yeah. they were not surprised. Like, oh, hey, well, you're here. Well, since you've come all the way from Virginia to Michigan. Right. And I, um, I remember, I distinctly remember, um, being in the old snack bar and looking out the window and watching Raymond Spiota. I didn't know him at the time, but watching Raymond Spiota walk across the quad or walk across, uh, yeah, it had been the quad in a baggy green elbow patch sweater with a long stem pipe and the scraggly goatee of a beard. And I, that was just the moment I was like, I want to be here. I also sat on Dr. Kaltoff's Western Civ class and there were, there were serious things too, but it was. Yeah, no, no, that's great. Uh, Raymond's serious. That. Just that, that it, yeah, but it was it was the atmosphere, and it was just yeah. knowing like this is there. There's just something here. Um, yeah. I think that's I key, agree. and the mission there, the mission is great. Well, I've had at least three speotas in class. So wait, you have what? I've had three speotas in three? class. Three? Wait, there's a third? Yeah, Julia. Oh, that's right. Julia yeah, was she yeah, was cousin. she was older. Yeah. Or, yeah. or yeah, I, I didn't know Julia. I knew Raymond yeah, and Daniel. She's great. Oh, yeah, fantastic. They're all great. <laughs> um, well, Brad, where where can our audience go to follow your work? I know you maintain several different websites, but where where yeah, would you well, send people to you check and I, out your course, stuff? I mean, we do some things for Spirit of Cecilia, right, which is kind of my Christian humanist website. Uh, but then I, I do most of my writing. I, I write two columns a week for the Imaginative Conservative. So that's always kind of a place to go. And then I do a lot with Tom Woods and Liberty Classroom, too. So, yeah, those are my three, three loves, Hillsdale, the Imaginative Conservative, and Tom Woods. So that's where I do most of my stuff. <laughs> And I've been very blessed to have those to have those outlets. Oh, fantastic! Uh, any any last thoughts on Beyond Tenebrae or, or anything? No, we've thanks for taking tonight? the book so seriously, Josh. That was great. You pulled out stuff I'd even forgotten about. So that's really good. Oh, it's, uh, one, Thank one of you. The last couple of years, I've been wrestling through a hermeneutical discussion of trying to figure out whether the author really is the one who determines the meaning of the book and. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not over there in the the author is dead camp, but uh, right. Gottimer did convince me that a book is the author's until the book is published. And at that point, a book sort of takes on a life of its own. And it's sort yeah. of this weird metaphysical dialogue between a non-present author through a written word that is interpreted through a reader who reads it based on his own moment and place and time that is That's completely right. different yeah. than what the author intended. So I don't yeah. know if what I pulled out was particularly true, but it was certainly seemed interesting and I, I'm glad you, I'm glad you enjoyed. Oh, definitely. It was great talking. It's always good talking to you, Josh. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, so glad. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, my guest this evening has been Dr. Brad Berzer, holder of the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies and professor of history at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan. He is the author of many books, including uh, biographies of J.R.R. Tolkien, Christopher Dawson, and Russell Kirk, and most recently, the subject of most of our conversation tonight, Beyond Tenebrae, Christian Humanism in the Twilight of the West. The link is in the show description. Make sure to order your copy when you're done listening to the show. If you want to reach out to us to let us know what you think of this episode, you can do that in a variety of ways. You can email us at whatsthares at gmail.com. You could reach out to us over Facebook at facebook.com slash whatsthares. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit with the handle at whatsthares underscore. And just in case uh, you have been inspired by Dr. Berzer's uh, love of debate to include more debate in your life, be sure to check out our premium debates. For $3 a month or $30 a year, you can access one recorded debate a month. We call these Real Debates by Real People, where we have educated non-experts debating relevant, controversial issues. Uh, we, we've have uh, episodes on gentrification, gun rights. Uh, we, we've more re in December, we're putting out a lighter episode since it's the 
holiday season, where Dr. Will Begley and I will square off on the resolution. People with PhDs should be called by the title doctor. You can find all of those episodes at whatstheres.podbean.com slash premium. Thank you for joining us tonight for this episode of What's the Res? And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.